we live in an age of technology, right? We can all agree on this. Uh, you know, information, I read a few, few months ago that information doubles. The amount of information you can know doubles every three months. So if you learned everything in, the, in, in all of the world that you could possibly know, it would be 50% of what you need to know three months from now. That's a scary thought, right? And in the ways we access that information, it is always in front of us. We're constantly being communicated with. I counted this past week, Shelby and I in our home have seven screens. Now, we have more than that, but seven screens through which you can access the Bible. And on those screens, I think there's an average of five different Bibles on each screen. So I have a phone, and I have three or four different Bibles on my phone. And I have, we have, a, I have a laptop, and I have different versions of the Bible on my laptop. And I have a, a, a tablet, and I have a Kindle reader that somebody gave me. I haven't even used it yet. Somebody gave it to me for Christmas, this you know, reading device. And I have the Bible on that. We can read the Bible in all of these different ways. And as we have all this information in front of us, we have more information about the Bible and more access to the Bible than we've ever had before. And yet, I don't think necessarily that we understand the Bible more than we have before. You know, we don't necessarily, with all that access, get into God's Word and necessarily dig into it and understand it. And so we're starting this series, and it's not a series that's going to walk through uh, the Bible contiguously. We're not going to have this series. Next week, you won't see a sermon in this series. But throughout this year, throughout 2013, what we'd like to do is spend a little bit of time, intermittently, every now and then, a sermon given to uncovering one of those kind of older and stranger parts of the Bible. Some of those books maybe that we don't necessarily read, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the stories about Jesus, but we'll spend it looking at different sections of the Bible. This morning, we're going to actually spend our time in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and we're calling the series Downloading the Bible. So this morning, we're downloading Genesis, okay? And we're not just downloading it onto our iPhones or onto our smartphones or onto our laptops. What we're doing is we're, we're trying to get God's word hidden in our heart. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't just have to think about it intellectually, but it was in here to the point where we reacted with God's word inside us when all of those things came at us from different life experiences. Uh, To begin, I have a quote, and this is one of the guys who I really appreciate. His name's John Ortberg. He says this about the Bible, and it's really an important quote, I think, for us to understand. The Bible is not written to us. Have you ever heard this before? You know, when I was a kid, my church told me all the time, the Bible is written to you. You should be able to just pick it up, and you should be able to take it apart. And when you open it, it should make sense. And then I actually read the Bible. I remember at about eight years of age, I, started, I opened the, the NIV, and I started to read in Genesis, and I got to Leviticus, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is written to me? Really? You know, I've gotten notes from my grandmother, and I understand what she meant when she wrote those notes. I've gotten notes from my friends. I I read in school, and we have all of these things that are written to us. Believe me, the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. It was written with us in mind, God having a communication with some people way back in the ancient world, and that communication is something that benefits us today, and his Holy Spirit has always meant it for you and for me, and he may speak to us through it. But who it was originally written to is somebody very different than you and I today. In fact, the book of Genesis was probably written 3,300 years ago as the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and as they are these kind of orphan children who have been under a pagan system of leadership, God carries them out into the desert through these miraculous signs. All of these different, different things happen, 10 plagues, and the Red Sea is parted. And in the middle of that, he says, you guys don't know where you've come from. 
You need to know your history. You know, I grew up with a young guy, and at some point, uh, the two of us, we, we were on the same basketball teams, and we worked together and did all of these different things. And at some point, he became aware, that, as so many kids do, that he was adopted. And I remember him coming to this realization that he needed to go find his parents, the, the people who actually were biologically his parents. And he went through this whole process, and he eventually met his dad. It's tremendously disappointing. It was really sad for him, as it turns out. He realized his adoptive parents were wonderful people, and he had come from a very different sort of history. Well, the story of the Bible is very different. Genesis is actually there for children who have been adopted, in a sense, or were created by a God who loved them, but they'd forgotten them. They'd gotten out of touch. And so Genesis is there for them to hear their own history and for God to say, listen, come back into contact. You know, that's not something that's so far from our lives, right? Most of us have walked out of sight of God, and he's had to say, come back. And he's had to remind us where we're from, and he's had to remind us how much he loves us and how he created us to be in relationship with us. And that's what Genesis is all about. So I want you to just join me in reading. We're just going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. This is the story of creation. It's the story of the very early beginnings of mankind and all of what we see around us, the creation. And so read with me Genesis chapter 1. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word Genesis, by the way, is the Latin word for in the beginning. It's the first very line in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, very first words that God ever speaks in the history of mankind that we know of, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Very strange words for Genesis, different than any of the other parts of creation. Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. You know, if you read Genesis and there's 50 chapters and you're glad that we stopped there, right? After chapter one, you've had enough. One chapter is sufficient for this morning. But we have to talk about all 50 chapters this morning to kind of give an overview. And that's what this message is going to be about. Uh, But to understand it, we have to kind of take it apart. And I want to mention there's three sections. The three sections are these, the creation, which we just read. And then in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and following, we see the fall, the very first sin and all of the implications of that sin. And eventually then we get to the redemption, which begins at the very end of chapter 11 and goes throughout the rest of the Bible. Whether you know it today or not, you're actually living in the era of God trying to get back his creation, which has gone wrong. Let me tell you what I mean. Genesis 1 begins with this creation story, which we've read. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you notice how God began everything that was begun? How did he create? He spoke. The very first words, let there be light. Let there be light. You know, Revelation ends with a picture of this when it says that there will be no, there will be no sun in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no moon. There will be no stars. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Because all light comes from God, according to the scriptures. It begins with God speaking into existence what's in his very character, his light. He illuminates the world. Let there be light. He spoke into existence what we see around us. And, you know, that's very different than what the ancient world had. You know, the the Genesis account is built next to all sorts of different creation accounts. Whether you know it or not, there are stories about the beginnings. Most cultures of the ancient world had these stories, and they look a lot like this. There was chaos and darkness and water and all of these things, and some god gets entreated by some person or something, and they do some act, and, and they kind of labor, and they create the world in some way. But nobody ever speaks and then just something exists. The, the, the medieval church called that ex nihilo. It's a Latin word which means out of nothing. God spoke and something came to be that had never been before. That is power, right? That is strength. That is vitality. Our God has this energy within him that when he speaks, things happen. The, the word create is used in the Old Testament 42 different times. It's a very common word. You know, we use the word sanctified often around here or holy, either one of those words. And what those words mean is to be set apart, right? 
Well, one of the most set-apart words in the Old Testament is the word create. Forty-two times it's used. Over and over again in Genesis 1 it's used. But you know it's never used of a human being? Never at any point is a human being credited with creating anything. Only God creates. This word is only used in any of those 42 times of God himself because only God can speak and have something come from nothing. And this word is one of those sacrosanct words. It tells us a lot about our God. He creates and he forms in the middle of nothingness. And out of that nothingness, something comes to be. He breathes the breath of life into human beings and we're created imminently different from anything else on this planet. So create is used 42 times and only God uses it. There's another word that happens in Genesis 1. To understand creation, you have to understand this word. Seven times in Genesis 1, you read these words. You might not have noticed it, but seven times you came across this word. God said that it was good. One time he even says it's very good. The creation is good. You know, look at the person next to you. Just look. Be honest. I mean, you gotta, your heads aren't turning yet. You're looking at me. That's not good. You've got to look at the person next to you and say, are they good? You know, really, really ask that question of yourself, honestly. And some of you are sitting next to your spouses and you want to go, I don't know. I've seen some bad moments. Or you're sitting next to your children and you say, I've seen some rough moments out of this person. They're, they're, they're not necessarily completely good, right? They might be good. I look at my wife and say, wow, I'm really blessed to have Shelby. But yet there are moments, right? And she would say the same of me. We live in the midst of what is a little bit of a broken reality. Pablo Picasso, the great artist, was known to while he was painting and he had a tremendous narcissistic complex. He was always focused on himself. He was not a God follower by anybody's imaginary stretch. He, he, he was painting and people would hear him say, I am God. I am God. I am God. And he would say it for hours on end and people around him would hear him and think, what sort of strange, messed up human being is this that needs to think of himself as God in order to create? Why was he thinking that? Because he wanted to be a genius. He wanted for people to come see his artwork. And if you've ever been to the, the Philadelphia Art Museum, you can see some of those artworks. My dad, is a, he loves, he's kind of an artist, and he loves to go to art museums. And he thinks Picasso is just crazy. You know, you see all this kind of splotches of paint on something. But the world thinks of him as a genius. And he used to say, I am God. Instead of saying, I am God, the God of the Bible, while he's creating, says something else. Did you hear it? He didn't say, I am God. He didn't try to convince us that he is God. Instead, what he says is, this is good. Because he doesn't have to state things with this bravado like we do. He doesn't have to focus on himself. Instead, what he says is, I'm going to form light out of nothingness. I'm going to form human beings out of the dust of the earth. I'm going to separate broad expanses of water. And I'm going to do this all with my words. And I'm going to speak it into existence. And then I'm just going to tell these people who are going to doubt it over and over again. They're going to doubt me and they're going to doubt everything about this world. And they're going to doubt. And I'm going to tell them right from the get-go, it is good. It is good good. We were created in a good world. Something bad happened. We'll get to that part. But God created and we were built to be in a good and perfect world. You know, I can't help but go to this other passage that reminds us of something else. This is the prophet Isaiah. He wrote six, uh, 1,600 years after this portion of scripture was written. He writes these words, I am the Lord and there is no other. He's writing for God. I am the Lord and there is no other. And that Lord is the, the, the name of God, Yahweh. I am Yahweh and there is no other. And then listen to the present tense words, the words that are still happening. I am the one forming light. 
That word form is one of the creation words in Genesis 1. In creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these, writes Isaiah. God is still God. And he is still creating all three of those verbs. You know, verbs are action words. That's when we do something, right? Forming and making and causing and creating. Those words are all the words from Genesis. And Isaiah takes those words from Genesis chapter 1, and it's as though he recycles them. And he reminds us that the world in which we live today is still a world where God is creatively active. He is in the midst of all of the difficulties of our time, and he is still creating. He is still blowing his breath of life. His spirit is still moving. He is still doing this amazing act of creating. Genesis begins with the story of God creating, and it reminds us that God is still a creative God. He is so much more powerful than Pablo Picasso, who is just a mere imitator, and so many other people who thought they were powerful and wanted to step in and say, I'm independent, I am God. Well, they're anything but, right? This God says what he creates is good, and it's just enough to use that simple word. It was and it is good. Something happens. You know that story. Genesis chapter 3 turns the whole thing around. This is from the conversation God has with Cain in Genesis 4. It says, sin is crouching at your door. It's desire, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at your door. If you're looking for a negative passage of Scripture, this is it, right? You lay in bed at night and you wonder, you hear those noises, you ever have those, you know, something happens, the furnace goes off and the house starts to cool down and the creaks, the, the two by fours in the walls start to contract and you hear these noises and you kind of, I live in a hundred year old house, it'll be a hundred years and three and two years from now. And, and, and you know, the, the noises, I was here last night and we have a brick and an aluminum building and when this place gets colder, you can feel it contracting and you can hear these noises and I stop what I'm doing periodically to listen and say did somebody just come in and i realized it's not it's just heat and it's cold and it's contraction and it's expansion well imagine that you're sitting in your bed at night and you're wondering about those people and instead it's actually sin crouching at your door that's what the bible says this story happens cain and abel you've heard this story maybe cain kills his brother abel because he's so jealous of him and, and the story occurs in this context where he's so jealous that he actually decides to destroy something that God has created. And God says before he does it, he says, I can see inside your heart, Cain, and he could be speaking to me and he could be speaking to you. I can see inside your heart there are these things that tempt you. There's stuff that's crouching at your door. And it's different for each person, but we have these things in our lives and they want to conquer us. And our job is to rule over it. You know, the, the story of Genesis begins with a sin. And what's that first sin? No, no, no. The first sin. What's the first sin? Disobedience, but you're, you're theologizing. They, tell me what it really is. They took a bite of a fruit. You know, how many of us have not, when our mother told us, don't do this, we've, you know, picked something. You know, my mom used to make bowls of chocolate chip cookie dough and she'd freeze it you know and it'd be sitting in a bowl or it'd be sitting in the freezer eventually and you could take a knife and you could cut a little piece of that off and we were all told don't take a bite of that and what do you think we did you know once it's sitting in that bowl or eventually it's frozen and you know it's there and she's upstairs you take a bite it's no big deal I've never felt like I had to call my mom and tell her and confess all of those little sins when I was a child. I remember being in the grocery store line with my brother and we saw these packages of juicy fruit, these, these little pieces of candy that we, might, that we wanted. And I remember my brother rolling one up in his shirt and trying to sneak it out of the grocery store as we exited. And when we got in the parking lot, my mom caught him. 
And she says, we got to go back. You've got a juicy fruit in your tummy. And it was she didn't mean inside. She meant outside. And she said, you got to go back inside. Well, a little sin, but we had to go back and confess. You know, they didn't throw us in jail, did they? I'm still here today. It was no big deal. The store manager comes out and looks at us sternly and pats my mom on the back and says, good job, mom. You did a good job. You know, that's how the Bible's sin story begins. With something not all that dissimilar to, to just taking a pack of juicy fruit out of a grocery store. It seems so small, and yet something was broken in our hearts the minute Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit. And Eric, you were exactly right. It was disobedience. And that disobedience started to grow and do more than just be a little tiny thing in somebody's heart. It grew to be a large thing. It grew to be a large thing. And one chapter later, that's Genesis chapter 3. One chapter later, Genesis chapter 4 is where we have the first murder. Cain kills Abel after God even warns him, listen, sin is crouching at your door. You're jealous of your brother. You're going to be tempted. Your job is to rule over it. And Cain doesn't rule over that sin. It actually conquers him instead of him conquering it. We get a couple more chapters down the line. Genesis 6, 6 says the world gets so bad with so many murders, so many women taken advantage of, so many wars, so many conflicts that it's just anarchy. And in Genesis 6, 6, it says that God is sorry that he ever made mankind. He's grieved. He repents of ever creating a human being. These people he created and he said, let there be a human being created in my image and in my likeness. It is good. And instead of it being good, he says, oh my. It's something else completely now. And we get the story of the great flood. And we have this tremendous moment where God steps in and says, the kindest thing I can do for my creation right now is to push reset on the whole thing because it's so broken, it's so devastated. This little tiny sin in Genesis chapter 3 by Genesis chapter 6 has conquered all of humanity for the most part with just a few exceptions and conquered all of their hearts. It's like an insidious little virus spreading inside of them. And, and you would think that at that moment, of all moments, the human race would decide, okay, this is good. I'm done. We're going to move on. Eight people are saved from that flood. You know the story, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And they walk outside of that flood. And you would think, okay, we're finally done. We're over with this thing called sin. We're going to listen to our God. But he tells them, spread out and subdue and take dominion over the earth. Move around and make this place good again. And they do anything but. They decide to go to a desert and build a tower and to see how big they can be and how independent without God they can be and how much they can rival God. Their sin is exactly like Pablo Picasso's. They say, we want to be God. We don't want to follow God. We don't want to worship God. We want to be this God. That's what's in our hearts. Every time we sin, whether it's a juicy fruit at a grocery store, whether it's lying on our taxes, whether it's the big, huge sins that we all know about, or whether it's the small ones that are actually inside each one of us, all of those things are little steps across the line. You know, we're tempted to believe there are good people out there and there are bad people, right? You're tempted to believe that. And you're what? You're you're a good person. In your own eyes, be honest. You think of yourself as a good person. You don't break the law. You don't do this, that, or the other thing. When Chuck texted me last night, Chuck and Charlie, and they said, we're in jail and we need you to come get us. You know, my first reaction was, I knew Charlie Baver had a warrant out for his arrest. I always just kind of expected that to happen. But then I got past that and I realized, these guys got to be kidding. They're good people. There's no way some state trooper in New Jersey saw them and said, these are the bad guys, let's put them in jail. They're jerking my leg, you know. It took me about two seconds to come to that realization because there's no way. They're good folks. But that's not the real story. The real story is that we have all sinned. We've all gotten on the wrong side of the line. Romans 3.23, of course, tells us this, that we have sin in our lives, and that first sin has conquered pieces of every human being since. 
you, me, our tiny little babies that are just born, our elderly people who are almost passing away, all of us have the, the, the remnant of this thing in our lives, and it easily conquers us. Sin is crouching at our door, and its desire is for us, and our job is to conquer it. Our job is to rule over it. Romans puts it this way, the Apostle Paul writing years later, he writes this, and I cut out meaningfully the last half of this verse. It's Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is... And you want to quote the rest of that verse, don't you? Some of you are going, I know the rest of the verse. It's so good. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we're not going there. We're talking about the fall. When Paul writes this, what he's reflecting on are centuries of history. He's looking back over all of this story, and he says, you know, the first little bite of fruit, it takes one chapter, and murder occurs. And it takes a few more chapters, and lots of murders, and lots of pain, and lots of grief, and anarchy occurs. And the people who get restarted, they still have the sin gene in their heart. They can't get rid of it. And so they come through on the other end of that whole mess, and they sin again. And they blow it again. And the story of the rest of the Bible is the story of human beings who blew it. Just like you and me, right? So the wages of sin is death. And it's not just a death where somebody stops breathing or a heart stops pumping. It's actually death inside of our own hearts. Jesus announces that there's this possibility of eternal life. And what he doesn't mean is that you're going to breathe better or that your heart's going to work better necessarily. What he means is this is a quality of life, a spiritual awakeness, a spiritual walk with God. And it was that part of us that really died. More than the physical death, there was a spiritual death inside of here. We wanted to choose the wrong instead of the right. God's words to Cain are exactly, maybe the most descriptive words in the Bible of what this sin is really like. It's crouching at the door, not of our front door, or our back door of our house, but in the doors of our hearts. And it's sitting there and its desire is for us. And our job is to what? Is to rule over it. The wages of sin are death. And the sin that continues to grow continues to build more death. And it builds us this death more internally than outside. It builds it inside of our lives. It's tragic. But that's not where the story ends. God decides in the midst of all of that darkness, in the midst of all of that difficulty, to go after a redemption plan. And the whole story of the Bible, for the most part, is the story of God trying to redeem. You know, we have coupons, right? Some of you are couponers. And I go to Giant, and uh, there, there's actually a, there's clubs of people who are couponing now, right? I mean, this is it's not just me. I see these people. Some of them are my friends. And I go to Giant. I go to the, the checkout lane, and depending on how many groceries I get, and I have three little kids, you know, we get a lot of groceries. And, and the, depending on how much we spend, there's this little thing that shoots all these coupons out at me. And they're just pieces of paper, right? Lots of people just leave them there. They're just slips of paper. But if you pick them up, and sometimes I'm even able to pick up the ones that were there before I got there, and I pick up five, ten of those things, I pick them up and I take them home. And I look them over, and some of them I thought, I'm never going to buy any of that, you know. But some of them are things I want. Some of them are going to be valuable. And if I take them back to the store and I buy the item that's listed on them, and I turn that coupon in to the checkout person, I've redeemed that coupon, and it's become valuable. I get 50 cents off a can of beans or something like that, right? Well, the story of the, of the human race and the story of the Bible is God stepping in and trying to redeem us. There is so much potential in us, and yet we've been broken. And so God starts this redemption process. This is from God's conversation with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You can read along with me. He promises to Abraham that if Abraham does what God tells him to do, he will bless those who bless Abraham. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed 
through Abraham. It's the redemptive, redemptive process getting started. God is beginning something with one man. He tells him to move from southern Iraq all the way over to Israel. And he says, listen, from you, I'm going to create a nation of people. And I know your wife can't have children. And I know you don't think you're going to become somebody great. But I'm going to build a nation out of you. And from that nation, I'm going to build someone who will bless the whole world. The redemptive process begins with one man. And ironically, or maybe not so ironically, it ends with one man, right? One man on a cross. And Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, is told, listen, look forward to the moment when I will take what I'm doing here today. I'm using you, and I'm going to transform the whole history of mankind through you. Abraham has a son, and that son's name is Isaac, and that, then it goes on from there to Jacob, and it goes on from there to Joseph. And there are three main sections in Genesis spent on Abraham, Jacob, and, and, I, and, and uh, Joseph. And we see these kind of stories. But you know what's interesting about each one of them? These are the redemptive people. God's building redemption. He's building a race of people who's going to change the whole history of the world. But Abraham is a failure. In several locations, he just blows it so badly with God. Now, he obeys in some ways, but in others, he does the opposite. You know, would God have ever called him to lie about his wife? Twice he does this and says he's afraid for his life. And so he says, this is my sister instead of my wife. He, he almost loses his wife just because he's so afraid for himself. Real chivalrous guy, right? He, he's told to go to a land. And what does Abraham do? He goes to that land, but there's a famine there and it doesn't look so good. So he moves on and he goes to Egypt. The story of Jacob is even worse. God's building this redemptive nation through these people. And Jacob's the first one to have many kids at all. He has 12 sons and looks like God's going to do great things. But yet through his sin, he almost breaks the plan of God. God has to redeem him all over again. I love the story of redemption because through these three guys, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, what we see over and over and over again is God's ability to use broken people to accomplish his purposes. You know, God is in the history of mankind only used one perfect person to accomplish his purposes. You ever think about this? You know, the story of your life and the story of mine is the story of brokenness, right? Sin has crouched at your door and you have not ruled over it. There have been moments, I know you, like me, we have failed. And we have failed in such big ways that we know inside our own hearts, oh my goodness, are we still there for God? Are we still available? And yet Abraham lies about his wife. And Jacob at one point says this line. I love this line. He says it this way. He says, God, if you will make me rich and take care of me and make sure my enemies don't get me, you will be my God and I will then tithe. I will give you some of the portions of what I, what I have. Sounds like a real God follower, a real worshipful person, right? I mean, Jacob is a wonderful man. We should all try to be like him. No, the rest of Jacob's life is God wrestling him on the ground. And ironically, God protects him from all his enemies and God makes him fabulously wealthy. And yet in the moment that Jacob most finds out himself to be small and insignificant, God says, you know, you might still need me. And at the end of Jacob's life, he starts to walk with God and he's not pretentious and he's not arrogant. He gets past all of that I am God complex that we talk about with Pablo Picasso. Jacob had it too. All of these people failed. You've failed. I've failed. We have a story of failure. The human race is the story of people whose sin is crouched at their door because we chose to rebel. We chose to walk our own way. We chose to do what we wanted to do. In Genesis, or in Romans, it read, there's a passage that reads this way. It's Romans 8.22. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
the world around us is broken. If you pick up the newspaper, I get the Washington Post on my phone. I have three, three or four or five Bibles on my phone, but I also have the Washington Post. It's very nice. And I look at the Washington Post every morning when I wake up, and I read, are there any major things that I need to think about as far as our country? We've all been kind of focused on this fiscal cliff, which we've avoided for the next two months, and then we're going to face it all over again, right? And in the middle of that, we have what is constantly negative news. And if you just stop reading, stop looking at the details, stop looking at the facts and try to listen, what would this sound like if someone was just emotively speaking these words? It would sound like groaning, right? We have a shooting in Connecticut. We have a a stock market that's fluctuating and people's retirement accounts are being drained. We have retirements that are not working out. We have have, uh, insurance plans that are not covering the sicknesses that we're getting. We have all of these different difficulties. And if you look across the world, it's even worse. What is that? Well, Paul has a word for it. He says, listen, the creation that God created good that he says seven times in one chapter is beautiful and good. It is good. It's broken as well. This fall, it affected our lives and affected everything else about this planet. The wages of sin truly is death and the world around us is groaning and it remembers this goodness in its history and it expects that maybe there will be goodness in its future. But in the now, we sit in the midst of difficulty. You know, I told you that there's all of these ancient stories of creation. There's ancient stories of floods. There's most of the stories of Genesis you can find a parallel for in some other pagan bit of, bit of uh, religion or culture. You can look back in history thousands of years ago and you can find examples of most of the stories. Now, there are differences and those differences are important. But there is one story in Genesis that has no parallel. There is no other book in the history of the world that has this story or anything like it. That's Genesis 3. The most unique story in the book of Genesis is not the story of creation. It's not the story of God working. It's actually the story of humans failing the way we do. You know why? Because Christianity is the only religion on earth that has really plummeted the depths. This is a big statement. But it is the only religion in the history of our planet that has plummeted the depths of the human hearts and said, you know what's wrong with this race of people? It's inside. It's not outside. It's not that they failed to manipulate a God. It's not that they just hurt each other. It's that deeply within ourselves, we have been broken. And so Genesis 3 has no parallel because nobody else has the courage to say what is really wrong with us. What is really wrong is in here. What is really wrong is inside us. And the creation groans because what is wrong is inside of the human beings. And we're waiting for the adoptions of the sons of God. We're waiting for them to be revealed, the people who will actually be recreated to be who God called them to be. We're sitting in the time between the times where creation was good and Jesus will come again and rule. But in the middle of all this, we're not perfectly good, are we? We're people who do have a story, and that story has to do with Genesis 3, the most unique story maybe in all of the Bible, this side of the cross, that tells us where we came from. What I love about Genesis, you know, Christianity gets kind of a bad name because it keeps telling us we're sinners, and we don't like being told that. But if you look around and you start to admit that our world really is broken, what's great about Christianity is not that it's pessimistic and negative. It actually explains all of those difficulties. It actually says, listen, we know why brokenness continues to happen. We know why people pick up guns and do horrible things. We know why people will take money from the poor and make their own bank accounts fat. Why will they do that? Because it's inside them. 
Because Genesis 3 tells us that this sin started to conquer a little bit of the first couple. And by their children, it had conquered all of one of their sons. And it conquered the history of the world several times over. And God is continuing to redeem it. It's the story of our race of people. And it's the story of God. Creation is groaning. And sin is something we have to come to grips with and believe in and buy because it explains you and it explains me and it explains the news and it explains every culture on this planet. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story comes at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21 reads this way. Read it with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This earth is passing away. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God, and picture the first couple, Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the Garden of Eden with God, meeting with him, talking with him, having this conversation. That all went away the minute they sinned. The wages of sin was death, and they walked away from their God rather than living with him. But here in Revelation 21, the whole thing reverses. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Maybe the best line in all the Bible. This cross that Jesus dies on builds towards a moment where not just a few people, not just a a few people are changed, but everybody is transformed. There's this moment where God-believing people who trust in Jesus Christ are a part of a new creation. God rebuilds the whole thing. But we're sitting here. We're not there, right? And as much as we want to think maybe Jesus will return next year or 10 years from now or 20 years, we don't know. People have been predicting this for as long as people have been around since Christ, right? So we are here. And the creation is groaning and we are broken. And we do have sin crouching at the doors of our hearts. And the story of Genesis is not just the story of the ancient world. It's the story of this man. And it's the story of you. It's the story of all of us. You know, a thousand years after Abraham, there was this guy. He may be the most famous guy in the Old Testament. His name was David, and he became this great king. He was a, a really great leader, and he was a worship leader as well as a civil leader. He led people to worship God. He was a musician and a poet, and he wrote all of this great poetry in the Bible. And yet there was one moment when he was worshiping God and doing all this stuff that he fails. And he fails so massively that most of what we've done looks a little bit smaller. I love David because he makes me look good. Okay, because he's up on the rooftop of his house and he sees across the rooftops. Well, there's a woman bathing. And instead of kind of shying his eyes away, he looks and you know the story. He falls. He has her brought to the temple or the, the palace and they fall in love. And then to cover his tracks, he, he, they birth a child together. But to cover his tracks, he actually has her husband, one of his close friends. He actually has him murdered. This is a story of both adultery the sin of sleeping with somebody who's not our spouse, and murder, killing somebody for no good reason. He's the king of Israel. He could have anything he wanted except for this thing, and he chooses the one thing that he can't have to want. Sounds like sin crouching at his door, right? And he writes these words. I love these words. They're Psalm 51, and they're they're, they're the poem he writes after he sins with Bathsheba and after he's confronted by a prophet. He says these words, and listen to them, create. He begins with the word create. One of those 42 uses of the word create occurs right here. And he's not saying, I want to create. He's saying, God, please, this is a prayer. Create in me 
a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This God who is still creating, David says, in the moment of my failure, as sin has crouched at my door and it has conquered me, listen, God, I need redemption now. I need you to do what you do. I need you to save. And that word comes into play later, but the word here is create. Create in me a clean heart because my heart has been conquered by death and by sin and it is growing dark and I am growing hateful and I am growing broken. You know, some of us have a little bit of bitterness that took place in our life sometime way back when. And we have some little thing, some brother-in-law of ours or some mother-in-law or some friend hurt us. Or we have some sickness, some deep internal wound that we can't get past, right? I love to think about forgiveness because I think it's easier to heal cancer than it is for a person to forgive, especially when it's one of those major offenses that we take on our lives. And yet that little thing in your heart, once it takes an inroad, it eats away at who you are and it conquers you. And what David experienced was that very thing. He wanted something that wasn't his. He lusted after something that he wasn't supposed to have. And it conquered a bit of his heart. And then it conquered more as he killed to cover his tracks. And, he, and then he covered up the whole thing. And everybody knew except he thought they didn't. You know, he had kind of blown it under the rug, kind of shoved it under there and said, listen, we're going to move on. And yet God knew. And eventually everybody knew. And in the history of the world, Thousands and millions of people have read the story and we all know about David's sin today. And so he writes these words and says, you know what? It's not okay for me to just hide it. It's not okay for me to just cover it. This sin that started with Adam and Eve and caused murders has caused a murder again. And I need you to clean up my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You know, the Bible tells us, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any was in Excuse me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is a fabulous piece of scripture, right? Because this hateful, hurtful stuff called sin has eaten away at our internal lives. And where it's broken us, it's devastated us, it's eaten us alive. But God says, if any man is in Christ, if any man trusts in Jesus, if any man says, I am not God, there is a God, and I need to listen to him, and I need to trust in him, and I need to put my life in his hands, and I need to accept his free gift of salvation, then that person is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. We're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, but right now we can have a new heart. We're waiting for a future that's going to be perfect, but right now God wants to restore what's inside of you. It may not change the outside, but this verse tells us that Jesus Christ can change the inside. What an amazing truth. You know, the story of Genesis is the story of beginning, the story of God beginning us, God beginning a planet, God beginning the creation. But it's also the story of sin beginning. And it's also the story of redemption beginning and God judging and then correcting and then mercifully restoring people as they need to be a new creation in him. God does this. He starts with Abraham. He moves through Jacob and he goes to Joseph and he moves on across the Old Testament to people like Samuel and Saul and David. He moves to Hezekiah, Josiah. All of these stories are built around the idea of God redeeming you and me and people just like us. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. One of the toughest lines to believe in the Bible. You might be sitting here this morning and you identify all these stories that we've talked about. In Genesis, you may identify with the one that didn't come from Genesis, David, right? We may be people who look in our lives and we see this sin and it's crouching at our door. 
Maybe the prayer for you this morning is, God, create in me a clean heart. Because my heart has become so darkened in 2012. In 2013, I need you to recreate me. I need you to put my life and my faith in Jesus to this point where I'm a new creation, where the old can go and the new can come. If you've got one of those sins, or maybe a variety of those sins, if if sin is crouching at your heart and there is this death waging inside of you, the wages that are sitting there, the just rewards of what we all have participated in, if it's sitting there this morning, listen, we're going to pray at the end of the service. I'm not asking if you want to become a Christian. I'm asking, do you want to be somebody who walks anew, aright in 2013? Are you somebody who wants to realize that you can't do this on your own? You can't say like Picasso, I am God. You need a God. And he would love to be a part of your life, creating you anew. So I'm going to pray a prayer at the end of this message. It's not a a prayer about becoming a Christian. It's a prayer about being cleansed and accepting the culminating point of history where Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead and sin and death were finally conquered. Pray, Pray with me if you're one of those people that can just see